one time we were in Miami and if you guys have ever been around Miami, it's a pretty fun place, I might say. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the guys tend to get out and enjoy that. The next morning, they're not always as excited about hearing about shot selection. <laughs> Coach Stevens asked me to do a little speech on shot selection after the night in Miami. It was probably the biggest flop of anything I've ever said <laughs> in my career. I still have nightmares about that. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the Perth Wildcats and Australia's NBL, Scott Morrison. Coach Morrison is here today to discuss all things cutting, including rim cuts, space clearing cuts, and cutting during the pick and roll. And we dive into undervalued offensive actions and blood boiling mistakes during the always fun start, sub, or sit. This month, we're excited to celebrate the one year anniversary of our coaching and learning platform, SG, a resource that coaches from the NBA, EuroLeague, college, G League, and all levels of international basketball are calling, quote, essential and the best resource for high-level coaching anywhere. Learn at your pace and get access to SGTV, our unique and ever-expanding video library consisting of almost 500 breakdowns, clinics, Q&A sessions, and our crunch time and inside the set film room sessions with some of the world's top coaches. Visit slappingglass.com for much more information today. And now, Please enjoy our conversation with Coach Scott Morrison. Coach, thank you very much for making some time for us during the season. We're excited to talk to you today. The pleasure is all mine. I'm really excited to be on. This will probably be the one episode I don't listen to because I don't want to hear myself say anything dumb, but really enjoy (laughs) your guys' work and all you're doing for basketball. Coach, Thank you. Appreciate that, Coach. We'd love to talk about cutting, and I know it's a pretty big subject, and we'll narrow it down as we kind of get into it, but I'd like to just start a little bit more broadly, and your thoughts in both transition and half-court offense, teaching cutting via rules versus reads, personnel, just all your thoughts that go into it. Sure. I guess the background for me, I love cutting as well. If someone asks me to speak or do a clinic, I usually see if I can do cutting first because I like learning more about it, looking further into it a good excuse to do so when you're going to present. And I also you know, have a great value for it in my offense as well. So I think most people would say that offense simplified to its lowest form is just create an advantage, maintain that advantage, and then finish. You might want to squeeze in, make the right read after you have the advantage. But at the end of the day, it's basically those three or four steps. And for cutting, I find it's kind of a double-edged sword because you can gain an advantage with a cut if it's the right timing and the right pace and so forth but it also enhances your advantage after you get one. What I mean by that is a lot of times the most effective cuts are weak side when the defense is shrunk a little bit or pulled in or zoned up and you can turn a four on three situation, for example, on the weak side to a three on two or even better, a three on two situation to a two on one with a cut. And the reason you can do that is because regardless of how good of a shooter you are from three, pretty much at the highest levels, 99% of the players have to be defended at the rim. So if you send a threat to the rim, that guy has to be respected regardless of how good of a shooter he is. So even teams that sag off non-shooters, 
the runner cutter to the rim, he has to be respected. It doesn't kill your spacing because the closer you are to the rim, the closer the defender has to be to you. So it still keeps the paint open, still keeps driving lanes open. And as long as a guy can finish, that can really be a threat. But also now, whatever that three-on-two or four-on-three situation was on the weak side, it's the fraction has improved in your favor as an offensive team. So that's the main reason why I like cuts. And then the trick is to figure out the timing, when to do it, is there rules, is it reads, all the stuff you referred to. So for us, we have probably five or six cuts that are kind of built into the offense, and most of which come after you have some sort of an advantage. I guess the one example I would use would be the nail, clear the nail cut. So mm-hmm. here in Perth, we have a player named Bryce Cotton, who was a standard of Providence and had a little cup of tea in the NBA. And he's been, some would say he's the goat of the NBL in Australia. Regardless of what you call him, he's a problem when he has the ball with space and creates a lot of mismatches with basically any switch that he gets. So when he has the ball in the slot, you know, the example would be teams will load up the nail, same thing they would do for Jason Tatum in Boston, and really try to limit where they can get to the paint with the ball. So that clear the nail cut can do one of, you know, three things. I guess it can create a driving lane through the nail if the defender respects the cut. If the defender doesn't respect the cut, then you're creating kind of a two-on-one behind the cut. So the cutter might get a layup or if the corner defender pulls in, you might get a corner three. You know, that's an example of creating an advantage. And then I guess the example of main enhancing the advantage would be Bryce is an advantage. Jason Tatum is an advantage. Let's clear that thing out and give him even more space to operate. Staying with that example, and I guess, is it rules versus reads? If you have a shooter that's in that slot or you, like you said, if for a cotton with the ball, will you still cut him to clear it? Or are you going to say if he sags off, we swing and it's an open shot for him? So my number one rule in life, I wasn't a great student. I did a master's in business administration. And one of the few classes I attended, I remember one of the professors saying that there's really only one rule in business and that's the answer should start with it depends. So I try to keep that motto in life and in coaching. So I think the answer is it depends. What does it depend on? Well, for sure, if he's a great shooter, and they're willing to sag off him, let's zip it across and get a three or, or drive. I remember one time in Boston, there was a timeout and JT, Jason Tatum was in, he was in the opposite slot from the ball or he was going to be. And he asked me, he's like, I kind of forget, am I supposed to cut there or not? I said, you know what? You probably never cut because if his man sags off, we're quite happy with a guy like Tatum or Bryce Cotton in this case, getting that three. And if his man doesn't sag off and doesn't shrink, then the space to attack there anyway. So I guess in that case, it depends on what the defender's doing and who that person is. Some coaches don't want to tell guys, hey, you're not as good of a shooter, you should cut. Some coaches have no problem doing that. So it also depends on which coach you are. In a perfect world, the other debate becomes, do you cut the corner and you slide down or do you cut the slot and stay in the corner? That's a whole other topic. But in a perfect world, the non-shooter always cuts and the shooter always spaces or slides down. And again, it depends if you're the kind of coach that will announce that or not. Coach, I'd like to follow up on just implementing this, let's say in practice or in early season. And you know, you want to have these kind of read-based cuts. How do you introduce them? 5-on-0, 3-on-0, 5-on-5? I mean, how do you go about that? So I think, I'm not sure if this, I'm using this right, but the whole whole part whole concept, which my guy Brandon Bailey introduced me to. I'm not a big reader. I'm more of a podcaster. <laughs> I feel it's more uh, efficient. You can, you can okay. multitask when you're listening, but when you're yeah. reading, you're pretty limited. So we would teach a play 
or an action five on oh for sure to start. And then we would break it down. And there's kind of two parts to break down the on ball part. If it's a ball screen or even the, if it's a pin down the, you know, the two or three guys involved in that screen. And then there's what's going on on the weak side. So we would break both of those down. Obviously there's a read with how they're playing the ball screen or the, or the off ball screen. And then there's a read of to who or when should cut. And then the third read is putting it both together where the guy with the ball has to see who takes the cutter, who doesn't. Are we getting a layup? Or are we seeing behind? Or are both guys covered and we attack because we have more space? So our drills in practice would be all three. We'll do a breakdown drill. Let's use pick and roll, for example, side pick and roll. You know, everyone does the same drills, I'm sure. If they go under, we do this. If they show, we do this. If they switch, we do this. That's our read. Then we have probably a guy just standing with the ball where he would be after the action. And we have three on two on the weak side. So we send that middle guy to the rim in that case of a three side. And the guy with the ball has to just make a simple read. Does the low man take the cutter? Does the low man stay in a corner, which case the cutter should be open? Or maybe some teams it's more rare, but maybe the guy guarding the, the slot at the top goes and it's a different read. So you break down all three reads. We do cutting reads all the time in practice. We do attacking reads all the time in practice. And then you put it back together with some five on five. Coach, you mentioned on the three-man side, cutting the middle guy. And Coach Mantegna referenced this too and quoted you as the source. So now that we have you here, why <laughs> cut the middle guy? When Joe said my name, or before he said my name, I was like, oh, I'm curious what he's going to say. Then he said my name and I forgot <laughs> But I've never said anything about that transition anyway. <laughs> but the reason I like to cut the middle guy and the three side is pretty simple. Number one, on any of those cuts where it could be the slot or the middle or the corner, when you cut the corner, you're involving more guys into the decision-making process and the reading process. So basically what I'm trying to say is if you cut the corner, someone's got to slide down. So mm-hmm. at least two guys are having to be alert, having to know what's going on. Whereas if you cut the middle guy, the corners basically just staying where he is and the top guys basically staying where he is. And you're creating that big space to cover for the defense on the weak side. You can accomplish the same cut in the corner, but again, it relies on more people being on the same page and not all teams are created equal in terms of their basketball IQ and their field. The other thing is, especially in the NBA, the corners valuable real estate. So I don't know where everybody's from, but it'd be like, you know, leaving San Diego to live somewhere between LA and San Diego. Why would you ever leave? the best real estate. Why would you ever leave Upper <laughs> West Side to go live in Westchester? I'm not sure that's even a good analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. You would never leave. Yeah. You don't leave Perth to go live in Sydney. No offense to the Kings. <laughs> you keep the valuable real estate if you have it. So yeah. if I'm getting to the corner and I like what Coach Mantagna said about competing for the corners. You want to be there. That's where the shot's going to end up coming. And if they really play you tight in the corner, you're opening up a lot of space for your teammates. So I never leave the corner if I don't have to. Coach, maybe like a more advanced level of cutting is cutting taking place while there's a roll taking place. So you've got a five-man roll into the rim and you either are going to corner cut and drift to the corner or you're going to, you know, say 45 or burn cut from the slot and stay. If you're going to do that, how do you work on them not rolling into each other, not crowding the lane, or does it even matter? You just like the two cuts at the rim to open up space on the perimeter. Well, I think it goes back to what I said earlier and one of the best coaches I've ever been around, Dave Smart, who's a longtime coach at Carleton University in Canada. We were arguing one day about having too many guys around the rim cutting, like multiple cutters. And he made the argument, which I just referred to earlier, that if a guy's standing by the rim, you pretty much have to stand beside him as a defender. Otherwise, it's tough to play two-on-one in the paint. 
there's going to be a layup there. So you have a little bit more room to work with than you might think. So timing has to be pretty poor for that roller and that corner cutter to get there at the exact same time. And if they don't, I think there's some room for the corner guy to cut and get back out to short it or whatever the case may be. One thing that we like to do or we're starting to do is when that guy cuts, there's almost three options he can do. He can short it, he can cut to the rim for a catch, or he can paint it. And that's one way to keep the defense on its toes and not really be able to load up. That takes a little bit of work to perfect the timing, but it's a pretty hard thing to guard. And there's three distinct ways that cut can result in it. I think to start with those pick and roll stuff, to teach it, it's almost better to diagram it or call it. And then as the guys get better at it or the girls get better at it, they can make more of a feel. The last time I coached summer league with the Celtics, the first thing we did was put three letters on the floor. We put an A at the top, a B at the 45, and a C in the corner. And those were not only spots to fill and spacing, but also those were our cuts. So we would say, all right, run this play with the B cut, run this play with the C cut, and so forth. And that kind of taught guys both where to stand to start things, but also you know who was cutting. And we would say, hey, if it's a C cut, make sure B goes to C. Things like that to try and just speed up the, I guess, learning process of spacing and how to respace around cutting. That's great. When you say shorting, I'm guessing you cut the cut short, don't cut all the way to the rim, and then respace back to where they came from. Is that right? That could be an option, but I guess what I meant is like a short catch on the ball side of the, of the ball screen. So I call it short action. That guy gets through early and goes to the side of the ball handler. Ball handler hits him, and he has a read of the roll on the single side to deal with okay. kind of the stuff that. You know, Draymond used to do a lot of that back in the day. I'm not sure how many teams still do it, but I think it's a good way to get that role exposed to that single side. Coach, staying on those B and C cuts or a 45 cut and maybe then a corner cut in the drift, I guess more of a philosophical question. Which one do you prefer? You know, especially if you're going to attack like that nail help, you know, why would you 45 cut rather than send the corner and drift? Or why would you send the corner and drift the 45 versus 45 cut? Well, I think it depends, again, on how a team plays pick and roll defensively. So if a team has a very active top tag, I'm not sure what terminology you guys use, but the nail tag in a spread pick and roll, Mm -hmm. then maybe you cut the corner to keep the the low man occupied and slide the guy who's in the slot down to the corner. His man is engaged with the early roll. If it's a team that doesn't really tag at the nail and they really heavy tag the low man, then me personally, I would cut the slot guy try to take his man with him, and then you're exposing that low man to really be having to have a long closeout to the corner, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, cutting to attack the tag, yeah. Most defenses, especially if they're not really well scouted, they're going to try and go with their man when he cuts. So if you cut and your man goes with you and the other defender is engaged in the roll or the help side, then all of a sudden the guy's pretty wide open in that corner or in that slot. Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com slash form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. 
That's sgpod at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, another area of cutting I'd love to ask you about is like a lot of the cuts we're talking about right now are rim threatening cuts where someone's got to go with them because the guys go in the rim. But there's a lot of cuts that clear space but aren't attacking the rim per se, like a backside exchange or a ghost screen or a shallow cut or brush cut, whatever you want to call it. How do you think about implementing some of those kinds of cuts or movements as well into the offense outside of just a rim cut? Sure. So, I mean, the ghost screen, or I usually refer to it more as a slip screen, but I feel like ever since you guys started your website, now it's just a, a ghost screen. So I've, I've had to try and translate <laughs> since I've been here. <laughs> for, for me, the ghost screen is obviously the most lethal against switching. And we've utilized that quite a bit here. We have a smaller four named Vic Law, and he's made a living basically slipping into space with an empty side pick and roll with Bryce Cotton. You know, when you have a guy like Bryce or anybody who's a threat with the ball that people are concerned with, and you can run another guy by him, whether it be a bigger guy that can pop and shoot the three or another fast guy that can catch it and rip, it creates difficulties. It's really tough to communicate when to switch, when to stay and so forth. Obviously, if you mix in a screen, it makes it even that much more to predict. So those are things that we incorporate mainly against switching. Pistol action is another one that we run where you have the option to stay or ghost out. I think just the idea of teaching guys to mix up when you set it, when you ghost it, makes it more difficult to communicate. Once the defense can hone in on what you're going to do, it becomes that much more easier. But if you're willing to mix it up, I think it's tough. Coach, with that pistol action and the guy ghosting or setting it, the communication or from the guard is there anything on his part? So, you know, if he's ghosting it, he knows he can tack or versus if he's setting it and maybe going too early and, you know, risk an illegal screen or what's kind of the timing there or the patience that you're telling with your guard to allow, you know, that wing to set or slip. So that's the tough thing in offense with a lot of things is you can tell them what to do as players or the players can tell each other what to do. And then if the defense obviously hears you say that, they can be more prepared to defend it. So for us here, I find our guys are really good. We do it in practice. They do it naturally. They huddle quite a bit. In FIBA, most teams will huddle you know, on a free throw or a dead ball real quick, and they'll talk through what the next option is. And maybe I'll call the play, and they know there's two or three options they have, and they'll talk about which one they want to kind of exploit. Or it'll be in a timeout, and we'll say, hey, this next little stretch, let's look at ghosting it, for example. But maybe on the third one, let's set it and just see how they play it, and then we can adjust how we want to attack from the rest of the game forward. It is a fine line to create confusion with the defense and then confuse yourselves or put yourselves at risk for fouls. But I think, again, the more you rep that in practice, the more you do some breakdown drills mixed in with your five-on-five, I think it becomes more of a thing where guys can look each other in the eye and know what they're thinking. Not always the case to start a season or to start a game, but if you drill it, I think you can develop that cohesion. Coach, my last question on this cutting topic, it's like what you teach after the cut. You know, So, okay, great. A guy, 45 cuts, he's at the rim. And now you want him to get back either to space or screen for him or run some kind of action. What are your thoughts on after that cut, what you want that player to do? So it depends on who he is and what you're doing. We have kind of three, I guess, non-negotiables with our cutting. Maybe you wouldn't see it if you watched us play, which would make me a bad coach. But basically, you know, start with good spacing to make it as tough as possible for the defense to pick cutters up. When you do cut, cut with bad intentions, cut to score as one of my assistants Nathan Johnson used to say, and then 
respace and keep attacking if you don't get something. The ball handler can't be staring at the cutter and the guy behind him and say, hey, why isn't one of them open? Sometimes it doesn't work out. We've got to keep attacking. And in order to keep attacking the most efficient way, we've got to be spaced properly. So if a guy's a great shooter, we'll send him out to the corner and, and push guys through that way. If a guy's not a great shooter, let's just stay in the dunker and make sure we can finish and at least draw that defender closer to us. Like we were talking about earlier, most guys have to be guarded at the rim no matter who they are. And that helps you keep your spacing. And then sometimes, like in the example of a post-up maybe, where we dive a guy from the weak side to the rim and defense handles it and he wants to get back up to the corner, maybe we dive another guy right behind him. So you can respace corner, respace dunker. Certain situations, maybe you respace and get a second cut in the same situation. Coach, this has been awesome so far. Thanks for going into detail. We want to move now to a segment that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so... For those maybe listening for the first time, we're going to give you three basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and then sit one, and then we'll have a fun discussion from there. So coach, if you're set, we'll uh, dive right into these. Yeah. My mom is probably the only person listening for the first time, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So (laughs) coach, this first one has to do with things that really get your blood boiling as a coach. So things that your team would do that just cause you to stop practice, blow the whistle, you know, have a discussion, a teachable moment, whatever you want to call it. So the start would be the worst for you. So start, sub, or sit, bad shots, bad turnovers, or bad or dumb fouls. Wow. I would probably, a lot of things get the blood boiling. (laughs) I would say number one, bad fouls, because when you take a bad shot, there's a chance it could go in. You can also run back on defense and hope to get a stop. When you have a bad turnover, definitely putting yourself at risk if it's a live ball turnover, but you can at least hopefully sprint back and make it tough to score. But when you foul someone on a shooting foul, you're basically giving them free points. I would start that. Turnovers, I would sub because like I just said, a live ball turnover, you're putting yourself at major risk. Give up transition. Transition being the most valuable play in the game in terms of offense. And then I would, I guess, sub bad shots. I kind of made a living for a little bit on shot selection and how to create good shots. And that was kind of my job for a lot of times in Boston. Not a very fun job to be the one that says that's a bad shot or we could get one better. So I feel bad subbing it, but I have seen guys like Bryce Cotton and Vic Law and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and lots of other guys take really hard shots and make them. And sometimes that's the only shot you can get and you got to be able to knock them down. So I'd much rather that than the first two. Okay, coach, you said something interesting, and I think it's a great point with your sub, I guess, was bad turnovers. And you made the distinction between a live turnover and like a dead ball turnover. Do you talk about that at all with your team as far as like if you're getting trapped instead of throwing a cross court pass, you know, maybe you take a dead ball turnover versus a live one or, you know, the difference between those two types of turnovers that can lead to easy baskets? I don't talk about it much. I guess the only time we would bring it up is if it happened in a game or a practice that we were reviewing the film of. I guess it's just one of those things that you hope is common sense. Never assume common sense is there, but you would hope it's there, that we don't want turnovers, number one. And number two, we don't want a live ball turnover. We have a player in our team named Jesse Wagstaff. I think this is his 15th or 16th season. Has five or six rings. One of the most decorated players in the NBL history. And he saved a ball going out of bounds that would have been ours. and threw it right to the other team. They went down and dunked it a few weeks ago. And he's forgotten more about basketball and about winning than I've ever known. So I didn't really want to go too hard on him, but 
it was a time to make a little bit of a joke and everyone could have a laugh at it. And he knew he messed up. So I guess it's one of those things that maybe you have to remind someone every now and then, but you don't have to really go too hard because everyone has at least that much common sense, I would hope, at this level. Coach, with bad fouls, and you mentioned fouling a shooter, do you guys work on contesting shots without fouling? Is that a point of emphasis of how you want them to close out on the shot, but is it blow by or you know anything to avoid fouling shooters? We definitely work on it. I never want guys to be overthinking on their closeouts and risks not flying out. That's number one, is fly out there and take away the three with a good look. But we do work on contesting for a right-handed shooter, for example, right to right. If it's a guy we got to fly by, if it's a guy who we respect, but maybe isn't worthy of putting ourselves at risk for a blow by, we'll work on stop short and, and elevate straight in the air. But definitely a little bit of work for sure on not being open to getting fouled there, not being exposed to getting fouled. And then at the rim, lots of work on verticality, especially in the preseason and the offseason, just being able to stop and elevate with your arms behind your shoulders and being able to, as a big man, being able to drop with the roller and the ball and then slide over on the pocket pass and plant your feet and elevate. And that usually comes up probably, I would say, in pick and rolls and in transition where we emphasize covering the basket first. Those are the two times where it will come up the most. We definitely do work on it and watch film on it. And was it Brandon Bailey we talked about, but rim contests in transition when you have a guard, I mean, I feel, you know, a lot of times the guards are going to be the first one back protecting the rim. Are you having them trying to get outside of the charge circle to take a charge? Or are you also then teaching with them walling up and trying to stay vertical as best they can? Unless you're the Bucks of, I'm not sure how the Bucks are playing this year, but when I was scouting them, Lopez would never rebound. He'd always be at the rim, which made it real hard to score in transition, at least layups. So we don't do it that way. Most teams don't. And yes, you're right. A lot of times it's a small guy that's back there. We kind of try and teach them just to, our phrases, make the defense make one more play, one more pass, one more dribble, and just buy your teammates as much time as possible to get back. That's number one. And number two is just no one can test the layup. So whatever you want to do, if you're the kind of guy that takes a charge, sure, get up there and take it. But don't go more than a step outside the charge circle and expose yourself for a dump off. And if you're the guy that can block shots or get a little bit above the rim, then go vertical and just try to make them go through you. That's kind of our philosophy and transition. And I guess you could say at the rim, if you're a low man or if you're the basket guy. Your bad shots, you mentioned that that was your thing for a while as far as bringing that up and and dealing with that. How would you do that with guys that can make, you know, almost any shot that they take, but really trying to hone in on the ones that were best for the team? How would you have that conversation? My favorite one was one time we were in Miami. And if you guys have ever been around Miami, it's a pretty fun place, I might say. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and a lot of the guys tend to get and enjoy that. The next morning, they're not always as excited about hearing about shot selection. I remember one time in Miami, <laughs> Coach Stevens asked me to do a little speech on shot selection after the night in Miami. It was probably the biggest flop of anything I've ever said. In my <laughs> I still, I still uh, have nightmares about that. But over the years, I've taken a few shots. And I feel like the best way to do it is to watch a lot of film, know your stuff in terms of what shots guys can hit and at what rate. So, for example, if a guy can hit a fadeaway jumper from mid-range 40% of the time, that's a 0.8 points per shot. And then what does your team shoot on kick-out threes? Let's say it's 1.2. So there's a pretty big difference there. So the first thing you got to do is make sure the players all understand the numbers. You don't have to go too crazy with it, but understanding what 0.8 means, what 1.1 means, recognizing what your average is. So 
kind of like your minimum. We're trying to get at least this. Then I talk to them about needing to be able to hit those 0.8 shots. Like that's very valuable that you can hit those. A lot of possessions, that's the best we're going to get against good teams. There's going to be several of those late in the clock. Keep working on it. Keep trying to improve the 0.8, but shoot it with confidence when it's the right time. The right time is after we've exhausted our options to get a 1.2 or a 1.5. And I know when I played basketball 75 years ago, I set a record for three-point attempts and makes, but more excitingly, attempts. <laughs> My philosophy then was, well, I'm shooting it at 36%. That's you know simple math. That's better than 50%, which other guys are shooting from two. But what I didn't realize was you can get that 36% shot a lot, you know, basically any stage of the shot clock. If you spend your time working for a layup or a dunk, everybody's hitting those at 1.4, 1.5, and you got to see the big picture. So I would tell the, even the best players, like, hey, getting you to the rim is worth this much. This shot you're selling for is worth this much less. We're going to need it, but let's try and get this one first, and then we'll come back to it. Coach, staying on that, when in the shot clock is like those point eights are the best? Is it 10 seconds left? Is it eight? Is it six seconds left? Again, I think it depends on who that person is and what is it point eight, is it point six, all that stuff. Here in Perth, you know, I don't like to get too stagnant, even though we do at times. Sometimes guys will throw it to Bryce Cotton or whoever the team's best player is and say, Hey, go to work. And that makes it really tough on them too. So I think the longer you can hold off and continue to attack, whether it be in your motion or in your dribble drive, whatever it is that you do when your play breaks down, I think that's the best. And then maybe around six, seven seconds, I probably started to say, all right, let's just get the best we can do right now. Find the point eight guy and let him do his thing. Hey coaches, this segment of Start, Sub, or Sit is brought to you by our friends at Practice Planner Live. Practice Planner Live has combined all the components of effective, efficient, and time-saving practice planning into one easy-to-use platform, saving your most valuable resource as a coach, time. Ditch the Word docs and the scribbled legal pads for a simple point-and-click experience to build your drill directory, collaborate with your staff, and create clean, customized, and shareable practice plans in minutes. With over 75,000 practice plans created at the professional, collegiate, high school, AAU, and youth levels, Practice Planner Live is proven to raise the level of organization and effectiveness of any program. Listeners of the podcast can visit practiceplannerlive.com and register for a free 21-day trial and enter the promo code SGPOD to get 10% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. And now back to our conversation. Coach, our next start subsit for you has to do with ways to tag the pick and roll and specifically tagging, let's say the pick and roll is going away, the ball is going away from you from the two-man side. Yeah. So start subsit, tag with the low man, tag with the high man, or bring two in and kind of pass that roller off? So for us, and I'm sorry for doing this, but just, just have it. It depends on what the ball handler likes to do. It's harder in the early season, but once you get a sample size, you can basically determine what percentage of the time does that guy pass it and who does he pass it to. So for example, we played a team a few weeks ago where the ball handlers were destroying us with their passing. So we dropped our big and we brought our tags closer to their man, less tagging. Then we play a team where the ball handler attacks, say, 70% of the time. All right, now we're going to need our tags because we got to bring our big up to the ball handler a little bit more, and that's going to expose the role. So we need our tags to be there. So in that case, when let's say we're playing a good ball handler that can score 
and they have a good roller. We'll have both guys tagging. Here on our courts, we have pretty pronounced circle around a free throw line. There's always a logo there, much like a lot of the overseas teams. And then there's the charge circle. So our rules are the top tag is in that free throw circle. And you're like a chess piece. Our base would be to straddle the nail. And then like a chess piece, he can only move east-west along the free throw line. So the more of a threat that the roller is, whether it's because our big is up or because it's a really great roller, he'll move that chess piece closer to the pick and roll. If it's a team where the pass is more of a threat or it's a slow roller, the chess piece will move back towards the shooter off the ball, for example. The same thing can be said for our low man. He's a chess piece that moves north-south. So he starts at the top of the charge circle. And if it's a smaller guy in that spot, he's got to meet the roller higher so he can move north-south only until he's determined that there's no more threat at the rim. Now he can leave his job and go back to his guy or X out or whatever the case presents. Because why kind of work with those two in tandem versus let's just a middleman goes in, the other guy is out playing two. Why do you prefer kind of like what you just described there? Basically, I guess it's a bit of both. So because that chess piece at the free throw line can't go north-south, once the roller goes past him, now he's got to get out and become that flyer guy. And if it's a short roll where the big catches that pocket pass early and that free throw line chess piece is in front of the ball, he's got to be engaging the ball and trying to make him make one more play so that the big can get back. When that happens, our low man becomes less important and he becomes the fly around guy. So I guess we're trying to use ball pressure on the pick and roll to allow guys to do a bit of both. Is it harder to teach versus if you just clearly defined, hey, middleman all the time, this fly guy, you know, then you're just, you know, who's going to be flying around, who's going to be helping and, and working versus now it's a lot of variables. So it might be a little bit easier to do it. But I think you're also exposing yourself a little bit more to be attacked. I mean, if you have a great short roll catcher like an Al Horford, who if you don't have a guy at that nail and he's allowed a free catch, now he's playing two on one or three on two on that backside while his the screener's man recovers, for example. So if we can impact the ball enough, make it hard enough to pass it and get a hang time pass, guys at this level at least should be able to get out in time to close out a shooter or be there on the catch whatever the case is. So I think if you can drill it and you can simplify your rules a little bit, like the chess piece analogy and where your chess piece is located is based on whether that guy's going to pass it or drive it first, things like that. I think guys can figure it out. And then anytime a ball is just zipped across the court to the corner, four or three, we're probably going to look at the pick and roll defense first before we're looking at the weak side. Yeah. Coach, I'll move on to our next start sub or sit for you. You mentioned PPP points per possession a little bit and different numbers. And so I'm going to ask you about three different undervalued, I guess, offensive action categories that you would find on any video editing platform of your choice with analytics on it. And usually in the the top three categories are transition, catch and shoot, and then pick and roll handlers or say, for the most part, a lot of times the top three, but these three are like underneath those. And which of these three categories you would look at to try to really have as efficient as possible for your half court offense. So is it points per possession being the highest for isolations, for post-ups or for handoffs? Wow. Interesting. So I would say if I had to choose which I would like my team to be the best at. Yeah. Those three. So I would say 
in a perfect world, and this isn't how our team is, but I would say in a perfect world, I would want isolations to be the best. So I would start that because you can talk about offense and defense and schemes and X's and O's and all you want. At the end of the day, someone's got to beat their man and make a shot. You got to get the advantage and someone's got to finish it. So I would take that because a lot of times plays break down and that's the shot that you get. I would sub post-ups, but I would asterisk post-ups, including passes. I believe that's the synergy heading, right? Yeah. I like to create offense off the post with cutting, with screening. And I think that's a great way to generate threes, provided that you have a good enough post-up guy that he can draw some attention and some extra coverage from the defense. That should open up a corner three or skip out three. And then I would sit handoffs, not because I don't like using them, but I feel like handoffs in theory should be easier to be switched. And if they switched, I'll go back to my post-ups, including passes (laughs) and draw some attention (laughs) from that mismatch if I need to. Okay. Got a lot of places to go here with it. I want to start with your start in the ISO being now in Australia. And obviously you have great players in Australia, but you know, coming from the NBA to the NBL and you're just your view of when you get into ISO situations, are there spots on the floor that are different? Are there alignments that are different? Just ways that you think about isolating players end of shot clock that are different. For sure. So we have what we call our switch spacing, which is kind of what you're referring to. And basically we want to have both corners filled, a dunker filled opposite the ball handler, and then a slot free to his preferred hand. So we'll work on that as well. So if we get a switch on the right slot, for example, and it's a right-handed driver, we're okay with that. We'll tell him to move over to the middle. We'll space as far away as we can that left slot and let him go to work. If that same player got his mismatch on the left slot and the right slot was full, we would tell that guy to cut through get to the opposite corner as fast as you can. And whoever was in that corner will just push up a little bit to the free throw line extended. And that's a double-edged sword too. It's a cut that you might get something out of, but it also opens up that side of the floor for that guy's preferred hand. So the key is kind of knowing which hand guys prefer for the teammates, even more so than the coaches, because that happens quick. All right, Patrick has the ball. He likes to drive left. Let's clear this left slot out and make sure we get to the corners in the dunker. On the isolations, coach, are you just one example, but are you looking maybe if there is a mismatch of switch facing to get to the slot or get to the middle to attack or versus very rarely will you just like attack from the 45 and maybe kind of clear out a whole side? I don't like clearing out the whole side. We preach about that a lot because you get some switches with an empty corner. We tell our guys to get to that corner fill as fast as possible. And the reason I don't like it is because the more guys you have in that fraction of weak side, like the five on four or four versus three, the harder it is to get that advantage. If you have that corner empty, you probably have your other four players basically on the other side of the court and they can send a helper with still three guys to play against four. If that corner is filled and the shooter is respectable, then at least if they send a helper, it's going to be a three versus two situation on that backside. Coach, my follow-up is on your sub and with post-ups and you kind of made the distinction about you would add post-ups, but post-ups plus passes out of it. And I'm just wondering, you know, if your team is maybe struggling in that category to be efficient from a post-up, things that you would look at to change or different actions, different post-automatics, you might think about doing to make that a better number. I guess the initial attack for us is always that weak side 45 cut. And I think if you do that right, you should get something every now and then. First of all, human nature is such that if you're off the ball on the weak side playing defense and the ball is thrown in the post, at least for a split second, you probably turn your head and look at the ball. And I've always tried to teach that cutter, easier said than done, but that cutter, as soon as the ball is into the post player's hands, he should be on his cut already. And 
that also requires the post player to his first look to be over his shoulder. Is the cutter open? Has someone gone with the cutter? Is the corner three open? That should be our first look every time. And then I think after that, you have different options. It could be play one-on-one. It could be getting to screening action. Me personally, I haven't had great success with screening action out of the post other than maybe the odd ATO because I feel like if it's scouted, most teams will just zone up behind that post up and can hand off those cutters and screeners fairly easily. So what I'd like to do in the future, I've tried it at certain times, not so much this season, but maybe in the future is have more uphill DHOs out of the post. I think that those have a little bit more heat to them because most times that cutter is going to be getting trailed. And if the post can pitch it to that guy, that cutter and get out quick, he's going to have either a two-on-one or a smaller guy on his back toward the rim. Now it relies on the receiver to see the weak side and all the other stuff. But I think that's one way that you can look at generating a little bit more paint threats out of your post-ups if the one-on-one matchup isn't getting you an advantage. Coach, with the weak side 45 cut on the initial catch and then the corner man, do you want him still to hold that corner? Is it up to the big to find him or do you want that corner man lifting to get into the vision of the big? Generally, my rule is always stay in the corner and then trust your teammates to get you the ball. Example I always use is the dunker in the corner. Guys who are standing in the corner behind a dunker player, they tend to drift up. But in my opinion, that allows their man to slide back and forth unimpeded to take the top leg of the dunker and also be able to get back out and close out. Whereas if he stays behind the dunker, if that defender needs to drop down, he's got to get all the way around the big to take away the dump off. And that's tougher to get out and close out. So it's a harder pass for sure, but it's a more guaranteed shot if you can make it. In my opinion, you also got to be there for the, I would call it the Nash dribble or the Ginobili pass where the guy's throwing it basically out of bounds from out of bounds on the baseline to that corner release. A lot of times that's the only option they have when they get stuck on the rim. So for those reasons, I would say stay in the corner. And for the post up, if you're sure that he's going to dribble to the middle, maybe you can lift a little bit and make that passing angle a little bit better. But what happens if he spins baseline quick and you're not there and help comes? That's the outlet he needs to have. Coach, you're off the start, supper, sit, hot seat. Thanks for playing. That was a lot of fun. We appreciate all the great answers on that. Yeah, no, no problem. Unfortunately, you got that's the worst part of coaching. You got to sit someone. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Sitting someone and, and cutting people are the worst things. <laughs> yeah. <I can> do. <laughs> for sure. Coach, we got one more question for you before we're done. But before we do, thank you very much for your time. I know it's the middle of your season. So thanks for spending some time talking hoops with us. We appreciate it. Oh, likewise. No, it's been fun just even preparing to talk about some of these topics has been great. Coach, our last question for you, and it's one that we ask all the guests to close here. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? The best investment I've made by far is an investment of one season volunteering. Basically, I coached at Lakehead University in Canada for 10 years, built a pretty good program, and I negotiated a sabbatical in my contract where I could leave for a year. My job would still be there. My assistants took over the team and so forth. And I went and volunteered in the G League. And that's how I kind of got my break. I volunteered under coach Mike Taylor, who I learned a lot from in Maine. And my job was basically, I was the league's oldest intern. I did the towels. I did the uniforms. I did the laundry. I did filling the water bottles up, clean the locker room. And then Coach Taylor also let me work some guys out. So I was able to kind of learn about player development. I was able to learn the pro game from those coaches. And I took the time also to do kind of a research project. I figured if a professor 
takes a sabbatical and you know researches some topic of interest to them, I should do the same thing. And I researched uh, shot selection, shot creation, things like that. So a lot of days I was the most experienced coach in the room outside of Coach Taylor. And I had the least amount of coaching to do. And I think that I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and I would do a lot of things different. But having the humility at least one time in my life to kind of do something that I might have thought was beneath me in order to improve myself actually ended up not only improving myself, but giving me a great opportunity in coaching to get hired by the Celtics to coach the Red Claws and then eventually move up. So I always tell the one or two coaches in the world that are coming up that will listen to me or want to listen to me that you can never be afraid to maybe sacrifice what you think you're worth or what you think what level you think you should be on don't be afraid to sacrifice that for a chance to learn more and be exposed to new things and get a good opportunity that maybe wouldn't be available if you let pride get in the way thank you so much for listening to this episode Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.